And the Lord is speaking to us this morning through the reading of Matthew, through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 14 through 30. Matthew 25, beginning at verse, verse 14. And we pray that the Lord will speak to us. This is in the section of the scriptures of the, the gospel where Jesus is answering questions about the signs of the end of time. And he's given two, uh, two parables here about the end of time. The parable of the virgins at, in the beginning of this chapter and then the second one is in verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of, of those servants returned and settled the counts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, many of you know from personal experience perhaps that there's a couple of subjects that people avoid at family gatherings because of the rifts or arguments they will bring up, and those subjects are usually such things as 
politics and religion. First of all, the idea that someone in your family might be of a different political stripe than the prevailing allegiances may be rather awkward and offsetting. The idea that a, Christian can serve, that a Christian can support a party other than the conservative party can cause much disagreement. Secondly, someone having left the church which the family was attending can lead to awkwardness and judgment and so forth. And because of how emotional and heated these sorts of debates can become, many a family has decided that when they get together, it's best to leave it alone and not talk about church or political allegiances at all. But besides politics and religion, there's all sorts of other issues that we avoid, not only in our, the life of our families, but also in the life of the congregation. Let's face it, we're silent on many, many things. Various forms of mental illness, abuse, the place of women, marriage breakups, what we do in our leisure time, the kinds of vacations we take, our indulgence in and worship of sport, our use of alcohol and other substances, LGBTQ issues, our dependency on insurance and investment, our understanding of ownership, our worship of possessions, our waste management, our use of fossil fuels, our addictions to gaming and to electronic devices, our focus on and sometimes worship of family, our options for education and union involvement and so many other things. There's a whole list of things that we sort of ignore probably for a host of reasons, and so we let them slide by. We don't really tackle them and discuss them, perhaps hoping that somehow they will go away or that they'll be answered somehow and somewhere by someone. And sometimes it's hard to know how to change the culture and the climate in the congregation because rather than being open to discuss things civilly and based on Scripture, we have a tendency to come into arguments with our minds made up. We've already taken our stand based on how we have been brought up or based on how we happen to interpret the Bible. Or we have our minds made up based on what we've always believed or done or understood about life from our family or from our cultural perspective. And talking about many of the things mentioned and so much more only seems to bring discomfort and an awkwardness or a tisk tisk and, and maybe some judgment. Talking about many of the things mentioned and so much more only seems to bring division rather than unity and we certainly don't want division or disunity and so we keep our mouths and our hearts closed. Surely, keeping quiet can't be healthy. This series of sermons on God's love, our love, is designed to get us to talk together, and yes, even about some rather difficult things. And that should be possible, at least one would think, 
that should be possible. So while talking about creation care, as was the focus last Sunday, is in vogue right now and on the front burner, burner of many an organization in spite of the fact that we sometimes may disagree with that, talking about money and what may or may not be appropriate uses of one's money is not exactly something that we're generally comfortable with. Let's face it, it's a touchy subject. Imagine that an elder, as they used to, or as I would come to your house, sit at your kitchen table and say to you, all right, let's talk about how you spend your money. Let's talk about your shopping habits. Let's talk about your possessions. Tell me, when you make your budget, when you get your paycheck, does the first shot go to the church or to the kingdom? And do you give the rest for other causes? Tell me. Is that what you're doing? I suspect that if the elders came and asked that kind of a question, especially in these days, uh, they may be very well shown the door. And if not physically, then certainly through strong hints that that part of the conversation is now over. Money, our possessions, ownership, and so forth are things that, we are off, that are often viewed as private and as topics that may not really be questioned. After all, many of us think that we're entitled to what we have because, well, we worked hard for it. It's mine. I'm entitled to it. I have earned it because, you know, I'm a pretty good business person. Or my investment plans were pretty smart and pretty right on and so forth. And somehow we all have this thought that we deserve what we have and really no one has the right to question our use of it. As one writer put it, quote, people's purse strings are directly attached to their heart strings. You start questioning the purse strings, you start questioning the heart. And that gets a little too hot, and so it's hands off. But while we may be uncomfortable talking about how we use the things we have and the money we have, the Bible doesn't consider it an uncomfortable topic at all. In fact, Jesus couldn't leave it alone. Those who study such things tell us that, quote, out of his 38 parables, 16 of them deal with stewardship and the handling of money and possessions. In the Gospels, one in 10 verses, so 288 verses, focus directly on money. The Bible offers us 500 verses on prayer, and 500 verses, or less than 500 verses on faith, and then devotes more than 2,000 verses to money and possessions. Why? Why so much emphasis on money and possessions? Because the things of this earth so easily distract from our walk with God and our worship of God. How we use our money and possessions and the things of this earth speaks to our understanding of our place in the world and our relationship to the Lord. 
how we use money and possessions and the resources of this world around us speaks to us of our level of understanding that this world belongs to God and not to us. How we use our money and possessions, among other things, is a clear indication of how well we understand the summary of the law, namely, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How we, un how we use our money and possessions is a clear indication of how well we understand the concept of, I surrender all. Not a mite would I withhold. The late Dr. Gordon Spikeman, professor of religion at Calvin College, is quoted as saying, there are roughly four kinds of people in the world. What's mine is mine, or what's your, sorry, I gotta say this right. What's yours is mine, and I'll take it, says the robber. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it, says the miser. What's mine is yours, so I'll share it, says the humanist. What's mine is God's, so I'll share it, says the Christian. What's mine is God's, so I'll share it. That's the key to biblical stewardship. It's an understanding that this world belongs to God. Everything in the world belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, says the writer of Psalm 24. Why is it his? He goes on and answers the question, and we saw it last week too, because he made it. He made it. He's at the center of time. He's at the center of the gears. He's the one who makes it all work. And then he put us in that world, in that creation, in all the things that he made as stewards, as kings and queens to fill the earth, subdue it, and look after it. And so if it all belongs to him, that means everything we have, money, property, possessions, businesses, and so forth, are not really ours, but they're a gift from him, a trust, as it were, to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Of course, some are going to have more than others. The parable tells us that, too. But it all belongs to God. Our world belongs to God is our testimony. Now such a confession and such a line of thinking turns the whole North American concept of ownership on its head. Something that the small group material for today digs into more deeply. That material is found online or you can get hard copies at the information center. And for that matter, even the children we have are not really ours but a trust from the Lord who has established a covenant relationship with them, something that we're called upon to instruct them and to instill in them as they get older. The parable that we read from Matthew 25 
is a story that Jesus told as part of the broader, broader answering of the disciples' questions concerning the signs of the age, of the end of the age. It was a parable that Jesus told his disciples just before going to Jerusalem, just before being handed over to the authorities and put to death on the cross. So basically it was a parable that Jesus told his disciples just before he leaving them for ultimately would be quite a long period of time. And so basically what Jesus is saying through this parable is I'm going away for a long, long period of time. Only the Father knows how long I will be gone. But while I'm gone, I'm going to give you various gifts to use for the advancement of the kingdom. I'm going to entrust you with all kinds of things. And one day I will return, and you can, guarantee, you can count on it. It's a guarantee. I will return, and I will hold you accountable for how you use those gifts. And so he goes into the story. The kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a long journey. Before going, he called his servants together and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, a large responsibility. To another, two talents, a moderate responsibility. And to another, one talent, a small responsibility. Each was given according to their capacity and ability to deal with the measure of responsibility given. Some obviously had better business skills than others, and so perhaps they were given more. Incidentally, a talent, in the context of this parable, was a considerable amount of money. It would take an ordinary laborer of the day 20 years to earn the equivalent of one talent. So you can imagine this was a great, there was a great responsibility given to the first servant when he got 100 years worth of wages given to him. So obviously we're dealing here with a rich man who doesn't want his money just to sit while he's gone. That would be a waste. And if we think of him as being Jesus, as the Lord of all of creation, who doesn't want the creation and the world and the things that he has given to go to waste. Well, the first two take their responsibilities seriously and invested the talents, using them wisely and profitably. Each of them doubled the number of talents they had been given. The third servant took his single talent, dug a hole in the ground, and buried it there. Rather unproductive, to say the least. He wasted the opportunity to grow the investment made in him. After some time, the master returned and called his servants to account. And there's plenty of stories in the Bible where people are being held to account for their actions, and this one's no different. Every servant knew that their master would return and call them to account for their actions. And so here he comes back and he calls them to account. The first servant returned with ten talents and was rewarded with great responsibility. The second returned with four talents and was rewarded with moderate responsibility. Each doubled their initial investment. Well done, good and faithful servants. Excellent work. These men recognized that their talents belonged to the master, 
but they also understood their responsibility and so they so added to the pot, giving them then greater stewardship responsibilities on earth. They were granted partnerships in the enterprise, so to speak, and they were invited to share their master's happiness. They were faithful in the kingdom and invited to the final great feast for all eternity. But then came the third servant, the one who dug a hole. He came to the master and returned the initial investment. He came to the master and he said, Master, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were a cruel man. Or as the message puts it, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, to the last cent. He obviously had no idea who his master was. He obviously had no living relationship with his master, and so he was filled with fear. And because of a lack of relationship and out of fear, he actually ended up misrepresenting the master. He falsely accused the master of being cruel and unforgiving and being a lousy businessman and sowing where you can't reap. And then he figured that the master would at least give him credit for being cautious and making sure that the talent was untouched. But ultimately, he was only in it for himself to save his own skin. He could have at least invested it with a banker. There would have been interest, and then there would have been money, and the money could have been used to help others. But the servant was lazy. And as one writer put it, this wicked and lazy fellow had dug a hole little realizing that in a sense he was digging it for himself. The master gave him no credit at all. On the contrary, he was furious with the third servant. He said, again, quoting the message, that's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do the best? Why did you do the least? Why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. And then the master commanded that the single talent be added to the pile of ten looked after by the first servant. So how are we supposed to explain that? Is that going to create resentment? Is that a reversal of the method used by Robin Hood who stole from the rich to give to the poor? Now we're stealing from the poor and giving to the rich? William Hendrickson explains it like this. He says, the man who through diligent use of the opportunities for service given to him by God has by divine grace surrendered himself to the Lord to love and to help others and who in so doing has enriched himself shall by continuing in that course become more and more abundantly rich. The richer we are for the Lord and his kingdom, the richer we are in terms of the gifts that the Lord gives us. On the other hand, from the person who has become poor because he's never given himself, even whatever little he once had, shall be taken away. Remember what I said, how we use our money and possessions and things of this earth 
speaks to our understanding of our place in the world and our relationship to the Lord. How we use money and possessions and resources of the world around us speaks to our level of understanding that this world belongs to God and not us. How we use our money and possessions is a clear indication of how well we understand the summary of the law, namely, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How we use our money and possessions is a clear indication of how we understand the concept of surrendering all. How are you doing? The third servant didn't understand any of this. He didn't understand the basic gospel that God gave his all for his people. He didn't understand the basic gospel, the basic message of the master. I give you all as a trust to use. The point, of the, the point that Jesus is making with this story is that while he is away, our mandate is to be faithful in using the opportunities for servant service given by the Lord. After all, he's given us a trust. The furtherance of the kingdom enterprise at whatever level we are involved and with whatever talents the Lord has given is to be our goal. The Lord is the owner of all. And he doesn't want us to squander his creation nor the gifts he has given us. And so as the contemporary testimony puts it, as you read it also on the cover of your bulletin, out of the Lord's generosity to us, we freely and glad, we give freely and gladly of our money and time. Indeed, in response to a master who sought out his servants, his friends, his children, and gave his life for them, we're called upon now to respond with our first fruits. How can we do otherwise? After all, it's all his in the first place. We don't own any of it. We're mere stewards. And if we really understand what Jesus is teaching, then we note that our faithfulness here and our level of stewardship now seems to be a foretaste of our level of stewardship in the fullness of the kingdom to come. Come and share your master's happiness, good and faithful servants. That's a fascinating thought. But the parable ends on a negative note. We must also understand if we hide our talents, put our talent in the ground, and come up with excuses about a master who is cruel and unforgiving, and so forth. So basically, if we don't understand the gospel or accept the master for who he is, we're going to be held accountable, and we'll miss out on sharing the joy of the master. The message puts the final verse like this. Get rid of this, play it safe who won't go out on a limb, throw him into utter darkness. That's the word of the Lord. What's mine is God's. So I'll share it, says the Christian. 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift to me, so I will share. Amen.